good to see you all this morning and to be together with you. We will continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and you can, if you would like, begin turning there in Matthew chapter 23. We'll be wrapping up chapter 23 this week. I'll go and give you forewarning now. We're going to take a couple of weeks off and hear from a couple of others before we jump into Matthew 24. So we're looking forward to that. As you're turning there, you may have noticed there was a mini-me walking around this morning, if you saw him. Judah had gotten, uh, he wanted a suit, he wanted to dress like me, he carried his coffee cup like me, he wanted to get a bag like me. So I thought I was looking in the mirror this morning. Small mirror, but a mirror nonetheless. You know, it's sweet that he wants to do that. We like to imitate at least many of us do, our parents, our fathers, those who have come before us. We imitate people we admire, that we respect. We want to be like them. We want to be associated with them. We want to be known by their name. At times, there's others that we don't necessarily want to be associated with. There's other names we don't want to be associated with. And yet, try our hardest, we cannot be disassociated from them. This morning we come to a text in Matthew 23 where the religious leaders of Israel, trying, at least by their words, to deny their patronage, their history, the people to whom they most, I guess they most look like, that despite their best efforts, at least through their words, they look just like them. They look just like their fathers. So the question for us this morning, as we look at this broader text, at least one of the questions we need to be asking is, who is our father? Who do we look like? Who do we imitate? Who do our actions say we belong to? That's really what's at the heart here of Matthew, the end of Matthew 23. There's a bunch of other things that are attached to it that we'll look at this morning, some of them quite convicting. But at the heart of it is the question, Who's your daddy? Who do you belong to? Who's your father? Read with me, if you would, Matthew 23, beginning in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets, adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in shedding The blood of the prophets, you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, behold, or truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, 
who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pray. Father, as we open your word to this, us this morning, we first want to give you thanks for it, for providing it to us, for allowing us to drink from the water of life. Father, as we look at these warnings, as we look at these woes that are provided to the religious leaders of Israel, would we take notice? Would we take and pay attention to the warning signs and stay away from the danger that they warn us about? Father, lead us, convict us. Help us to cultivate a greater desire to love you and an actual love for you as well as for others. In your name, amen. This morning we finish with the seventh of these woes, these woes of warning. We've seen the previous six in the last two weeks. These woes are directed against the religious leaders of Israel. This was not a new phenomenon, just as we read about from Hosea chapter 4 this morning. The religious leaders of Israel were those with whom God had contention, with whom he fought, with whom he sent his prophets, his emissaries to warn and to correct. It was the spiritual leaders of Israel who were ultimately responsible, everybody shared in the guilt, but who were ultimately responsible in leading the nation away from God in the Old Testament. And as we've seen, as we've observed these past couple of weeks, these same religious leaders have not brought the people any closer to God. Through their extra laws, their addition to the Word of God, through their burdensome teaching. By majoring on the minors, they continued to distract people from what was really important. The greatest and foremost commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it is that we come to the final woe. We find it in verses, introduced in verses 29 through 33, with a little bit more commentary in 34 through 36. And the final woe talks about these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, and labels them once again hypocrites. We've seen that several times previously. And they're called hypocrites because they build the tombs of the prophets, they adorn the monuments of the righteous. We talked about tombs last week, the tombs that were whitewashed to keep people away from them as they enter Jerusalem for Passover, lest they accidentally, inadvertently come in contact with a dead body and thus be declared unclean for seven days and miss out on all the fun and festivities of Passover, unable to partake in the sacrifices. Here again, you can see the connection, we come to tombs, but this time Jesus uses it as an illustration. He uses the tombs to, to draw attention to how they, these religious leaders, they love to decorate the tombs, they love to pay homage to the prophets, to those who should be well-respected in the Old Testament. But all the while, Jesus says, 
if you had been living in the days of your fathers, you would have been just like them. You would have been the one who put these prophets, these emissaries of mine, to death. Despite your words which say we would not have done this, you lie. You are hypocrites. They act as if they would have had no part in the innocent shedding of blood that was perpetuated by the religious and political leaders of Israel in her past. Israel's leaders were notorious for hunting down the prophets of God. All the way from Saul's persecution of David, who was called a prophet, to Ahab and Elijah, to Isaiah, who was sawn in half, to Jeremiah, who was imprisoned in a cistern, the list goes on and on and on. And so Jesus says in verse 31, despite your words, you testify against yourselves. You may want to deny that you have any lineage, any association with these fathers, but you are just like them. Why does he say that? Though they act like they would never do what their fathers had done, what do we know they have been doing since Matthew, at least since Matthew chapter 12? What do they do to John the Baptist? They helped conspire to get Herod to put him to death. Matthew chapter 12, they began conspiring against whom else? Jesus himself. They've been conspiring to put him to death while piously claiming to be different than those who came before. They are, while saying we are not at all like our fathers, plotting to do the exact same thing, having recently done it to John the Baptist. So Jesus says in verse 32, fill up the measure of your fathers. That is, go ahead, make good on your plots and your evil intentions. Jesus is really calling them out. He says, stop hiding in the darkness. Come back out from the rocks you've crawled under, you brood of vipers. Come back out and make good on your plots. Go ahead, do it. Stop being a hypocrite. What I think is marvelous in this is that Jesus demonstrates that even their worst won't upset the plans of God. Little did anyone realize at the moment that Jesus is saying, fulfill the evil and wicked measure of your fathers, he also meant bring to fulfillment the heavenly father's plan of salvation. That's the greatest and most, that in the midst of the greatest and most climactic miscarriage of justice and wickedness, we would find the climactic moment of salvation. When God's plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world would arrive in the peak of injustice. But none of that excuses the wickedness or the nature of these religious leaders. So Jesus' words in verse 33 are a final warning. Final warning attached to these woes. You will not escape that judgment. That judgment of hell, of Gehenna. Unless you turn and rightly recognize me as the Son of God. Now, that's an ellipsis there. It doesn't say rightly recognize me as the Son of God, but that's what the past two chapters have been all about. That's what they've been upset about ever since he stepped foot again in the temple is that he made himself out to be God. And they would have none of that. They were upset that, the, first off, the people were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. They were further upset that the children couldn't stop singing the song in the temple courtyards. And then they really got upset when Jesus wouldn't silence them. But instead, affirmed that he is God. 
He is God incarnate. He has existed before the foundations of the world. And that is at the heart of what is going on. Their refusal to acknowledge their rejection of Jesus as God. And unless they are willing to acknowledge that fact, unless they are willing to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the greatest of all who have been sent from God, then how will they escape the judgment of hell? And therein lies the most important question any of us could ever be asked. How will you escape hell? Every one of us is guilty of the sentence of hell. Each of our sins nailed Christ to the tree. We are complicit in his murder through our sin. More than that, our sin is rebellion against God. Sin is not sin because it hurts other people. Sin is sin because it rebels against a holy God. Hurting other people is just a byproduct. Sin is open rebellion against God that will incur judgment. So then the question, that important question, that all-important question, how then can any of us escape the sentence and the judgment of hell? And I hope you know the answer. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's what, again, the religious leaders refuse to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God. That was the primary issue. And so the warning for us this morning is simple and clear. Make certain that you know Jesus as the Son of God. Not as a good man, not as a wise teacher, not as an important figure of history, but to believe that he is God. That is the image, the representation of the Father as the ancient creed goes. Very God of very God. It's helpful sometimes to be reminded of those creeds. The Nicene Creed reads, it's one of the shorter ones, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us, men, for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, he was buried, the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Ghost the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. You see, if you can confess this morning that creed with all sincerity, with all trust, with all belief, not because I say it, but because it's what God says, then you will escape the judgment of hell. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that's the message that we need to proclaim, that we need to be out there proclaiming. If we really love our neighbors as ourselves, then the greatest love we could show them is to tell them this very message, to share this very message with them, because how else will they escape the punishment of hell? 
Well, Jesus goes on. He wants to further demonstrate that they are completely culpable, these religious leaders, to demonstrate that they belong not only to their historical fathers or wicked religious leaders, but to Satan himself, the father of lies and murder. I don't think it's an accident that he uses the rather derogatory term, brood of vipers, talking about the great serpent. Jesus will continue to send righteous prophets, wise men, and scribes. In verse 34 we read, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And we know this is true, historically. See it in the early chapters of Acts. They will kill and persecute them mercilessly so that their patronage, their lineage will be made clear. They are of their fathers. Jesus says this will be done so that they will be guilty of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from Abel to Zechariah. The reference here to Abel and Zechariah is a reference to the very first recorded shedding of innocent blood, which is Abel by his brother Cain, over the issue of sacrifice and worship, all the way to the last recorded shedding of innocent blood, again, over the issue of rightly worshiping God, there at the end of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it happens in Second Chronicles. You may be saying, hang on a second, I've read my Bible, Second Chronicles isn't at the end of the Old Testament. Well, the Hebrew Old Testament was arranged differently. We talk about sometimes, and we've done this as we've gone through Matthew, we talk about a twofold or a threefold division of the Old Testament. They would often refer to it as either the law and the prophets or the law, the prophets, and the writings. Sometimes prophets and writings were just subsumed together. But they had the law, they had the prophets and the writings, and that was the order in which they laid out the Old Testament. And the writings are at the end, and at the end of the writings are chronicles. They didn't call them first and second chronicles, it was just chronicles. And there near the end of Second Chronicles, in Second Chronicles 24-21, we find the murder of a faithful priest of Yahweh, Zechariah, who is stoned to death in the courtyard of the temple, the house of God, on orders from the king and religious leaders. It's a really sad story because you have a king who originally started out well, and then there was the death of either Zechariah's father or grandfather, and others came in, began to turn his heart away, false teachers, false religious leaders, so they even convinced him to kill Zechariah, the faithful priest of God and prophet of God. Now you might have turned to 2 Chronicles 24 and you might be saying, hold on a second, the Zechariah in 2 Chronicles is named the son of Jehoiada, not the son of Berechiah. You might have already read a footnote in your study Bible that notes that there is a Zechariah who's the son of Berechiah, and he's... The Zechariah of the Minor Prophets. First off, I'm glad you're paying such close attention. But how do we answer this? Well, there's a few possibilities. First, Luke 11.51, which records Jesus making the same statement about innocent blood being shed from Abel to Zechariah leaves off son of Berechiah. So it's possible that later copiers of Matthew were so familiar with the Zechariah of the Minor Prophets that they, when they wrote this, named Zechariah, they wrote Zechariah, son of Berechiah, and that got inserted later. Um, but this is speculating, because unlike other places where that's clear that that happens, because we have earlier copies that show the text without that inserted word or phrase, there is no extant or still surviving text that we have that shows this. But it is a possibility. 
Another explanation some have suggested is that Jehoiada, who was a faithful priest, lived 130 years according to 2 Chronicles 24. It's quite a while. And that he was actually Zechariah's grandfather and that he had a father who was named Berechiah. Again, this is speculation, though it's not at all uncommon for Hebrew genealogies to jump two or three persons to the person considered important to the story as it carries the story forward. It also helps to know that there is good evidence from the Second Temple literature that the Zechariah from Second Chronicles was particularly well known as an example of the shedding of innocent blood. So it would be very logical for Jesus to make reference to him. It's that capstone, that beginning and that end. There are other possible explanations, but at the end of the day, it, even though it may not be a perfect explanation, it seems best to read this as we do in Luke 11.51. And to see this as the martyred Zechariah of 2 Chronicles 24, whose innocent blood was shed in the temple. Now, I wanted to explain that because of the different names, in case you came across that at a later time. But don't let that little excursion into the Old Testament, into 2 Chronicles, or the possible theories distract you from the main point. The point is that from the start to the end of the Old Testament, God has been sending his prophets and his messengers. Jesus tells a parable about this, right? where he has a vineyard, he leases the vineyard out, he puts caretakers over it, and then begins sending persons to collect from the vineyard. They abuse, they mistreat, kill, and eventually even murder the vineyard owner's son. That's the history of the Old Testament in analogy. God has been sending his prophets, his messengers. The religious and political leaders of Israel have in turn slaughtered them over and over and over again, creating a river of innocent blood throughout the pages of the Old Testament into the New Testament. And Jesus says the responsibility for all of this innocent blood belongs to you. Speaking to the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel. You have inherited it because you belong to the wicked and evil religious leaders of Old Testament Israel. Your actions that we've been looking at over the past several weeks of hating your neighbors demonstrates this. But even more so, your conspiracy to execute the Son of God, the greatest of God's messengers, very God of very God, is the climactic demonstration, the irrefutable evidence that, your fa- that they are your fathers and you inherit their guilt. Your only hope then is to throw off the identity of your fathers, to turn and worship the Son of God. Because unless they are willing to repent and turn from the wicked and bloody paths of their fathers, their hands will remain covered in innocent blood. And there's an interesting, fascinating, somewhat beautiful history throughout the Old Testament of the blood of the righteous crying out, from Abel's crying out from the ground to God, to Zechariah as he's dying, crying out for God to avenge. And God will judge the shedding of innocent blood, the greatest of which is the shedding of Christ's blood. Verse 36 provides a capstone. This guilt, the evidence of this guilt, will come upon this generation. We'll have more to say about the term generation when we get into Matthew 24. But it's used two different ways. Sometimes they even overlap. One to describe a specific group of people in a limited time frame who are usually usually related through race and ancestry. 
but it's also used to describe a type of people. In fact, in classical it's the most common usage to describe a group of people exhibiting similar characteristics and interests. And here, whether this is a reference to a group of people within a certain generation and time frame, maybe 18 to 20 years of persons living at the time of Christ, or whether it's a broader description of those who are characterized by these same evil and wicked traits, of those who shed innocent blood, the implication is clear. They will bear the guilt and they will suffer the consequences for eternity because regardless of what generation is being talked about, they're a part of it. Like I said, we'll flesh out generation later. After a description like that, aren't you glad you can say you are nothing like them? That you never act like this evil and wicked generation? That you never shed innocent blood? You know, it's interesting, Jesus said in Matthew 5, back in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. That is the shedding of innocent blood. Whoever commits murder shall be liable in the court. What does he say? But I say to you, this one is about to get very personal. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. He just equated being angry with someone with murdering and shedding innocent blood. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. It's an even greater outrageous murder it's being likened to. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Skip the court, you're going straight to hell. So let me ask again, have you ever been guilty of shedding innocent blood with your words? Throughout the Old and New Testament, slander itself is equated with shedding of blood, with murder. Our actions at times, when we hurt our neighbors, we kill our neighbors through our words and through our actions, we shed innocent blood. And I don't say this to minimize or to in any way distract from the great shedding of innocent blood that these religious leaders are about to perpetrate in killing Christ. But I do it to say that we are not all, all that unlike them. And so we need to take this final woe of warning to heart. Do not be guilty of the shedding of innocent blood through words and actions that are unloving. We need to be quick to repent. We need to do a better job of loving our neighbor of watching and guarding our tongue. James says that's one of the hardest, if not the hardest, thing to do. Especially even, even as, not especially, just even as a believer. How does he liken it? If anyone can tame the tongue, he can do just about anything. We can tame all sorts of wild beasts and animals. Just ask Nora. She loves talking about animals and figuring them out and taming them. Taming the tongue? It's a beast, a monster in and of itself. And it does such damage. Children especially. I know it can be hard. You know, there's that phrase, you may have heard it, maybe not. Familiarity breeds contempt. And you're around siblings all the time. Watch your words. 
We have to say that in our household. Watch your words. Don't be guilty of shedding innocent blood. Verse 37 closes this out, this indictment of Jesus against the religious leaders with an immense display of compassion. We close by looking at the great mercy and compassion of Christ. In verse 37, don't miss this either. There's a subtle reference to, again, the preexistence of Christ. He starts by looking at the past. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, how often during all of those previous stonings throughout your history have I wanted to gather your children together? Now, how could he do that if he didn't exist at that time? How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. It's the mother hen who sits there calling her chicks to her. If you've ever seen chicks, they'll they'll start scattering about if you chase them, but then the mother hen, can they'll come running and gather under her wings, and they just won't come. They won't come. It's looking at the past at the desire to show mercy, to show grace, and he's been so patient so far. But then verse 38, notice that it moves us into the present, at least the present of Jesus' time. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house, the temple, is being left to you desolate. It could be a reference to the temple, it could be Jerusalem, it could be Israel as a whole. All of those at times are used to refer to your house. They also don't have to be this is being left to you desolate this was a relatively common Old Testament prophetic description for destruction that would come upon Israel for her unfaithfulness for her harlotry for her turning from God for her failure to worship God to love God we read Hosea 4 but if you go a couple chapters later to Hosea 6 we read in Hosea 6 6 which Jesus is fond of quoting I delight in your loyal love rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And their failure to recognize and rightly prioritize their worship, the prophets say, will lead to desolation. Daniel even tells us in Daniel 9.26, there will be many desolations for Israel. Finally, verse 39 moves to the future. time, it transports us there when Christ returns to rule and to reign forever. When the proclamation of Psalm 118 that was repeated during Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is proclaimed now in sincerity in, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That is, every soul that has ever existed will proclaim this. In sincerity, not all in that saving belief, but in sincerity. In recognition, rightful recognition, that this is true. That he is very God of very God. What does Philippians say? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And don't forget what Isaiah has said. 
God does not share his glory with another. Which again means that he is very God, a very God. If praising Jesus is to the glory of the Father, then praising Jesus is praising the Father. So we draw this chapter, these woes of warning to a close. I think it'd be wise for us to spend just the last few minutes we have this morning thinking about two specific terms that are used over and over and over again in these woes of warning. Because I think they get thrown a lot, around a lot in our evangelical circles. The first is the term hypocrites. It was used once again in this final woe in verse 29. We define hypocrisy as pretending to be something you're not. It's putting on a play, it's acting. In the case of the religious leaders, we've already seen many areas where they are willingly and knowingly engaged in hypocrisy. Pretending to care for others when all they really care about is themselves. That's clear. That's evident. But that's not always the case. What do I mean by that? Well, there's another term that's often put right next to hypocrisy. Just in these words of warning. Look back and see if you can find it. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. find that several times. Now, how can a hypocrite be a blind guide? The blindness implies that there are some areas of their hypocrisy to which they are blindly playing the part. In other words, if I might use a somewhat oxymoronic expression, there are at times sincere hypocrites. Religious leaders sincerely thought they were teaching and that their teachings and their actions earned them God's favor. But as Jesus reveals, their teaching and their actions condemned themselves and their followers to hell. But they were sincere. Sincerity will never be an excuse before God. There will be many sincerely religious persons in hell because sincerity does not save. But even for the disciple of Jesus Christ, we must not mistake sincerity for theological, doctrinal, or practical obedience. We can be sincerely wrong in how we think and behave as Christians. We can be hypocrites. We must be careful not to imitate the error of the hypocritical religious leaders by allowing our own opinions, our own thoughts, our own preferences, however sincere and well-intentioned to dictate our thinking and actions. It is possible to sin with good intentions and sincerity. Instead, we must always humbly submit to God's word, become students of God's word. Also, one of the greatest secrets to preventing pride and selfishness is to be focused on loving God and loving others. This is one of the greatest safeguards we have. It's why Jesus has spent so much time exposing the lack of love for neighbor and love for God in these religious leaders. It's because by not loving our neighbor, by not focusing on our neighbor, we begin to focus on ourselves. And all of a sudden, our opinions, our thoughts, our preferences become paramount. We need to avoid these things. But there's another term that we throw around in evangelical circles, or at least I've heard it. You probably have as well. It's the term Pharisee. I was told this morning, I won't name the person, 
that they were reading the term Pharisee this week, and every time they read it, they thought of me. Maybe I shouldn't explain that. Yeah. Just because of all that we've been studying of the Pharisees and all that we've been talking about. Thankfully, they clarified that for me. We often associate this term Pharisee with legalism. And we may use the term derogatorily to critique someone's legalistic tendencies. But while legalism can certainly hurt your neighbor, and the Pharisees were certainly guilty of it, you realize they weren't condemned as much for their legalism as it was for their misplaced priorities. The legalism was a symptom of their greater problem. It was absolutely a characteristic of the Pharisees, but there was a greater problem at play. We looked at this last week. It was their misplaced priorities. They lost sight of the forest for the trees. They forgot what is of the greatest importance. How often do we get distracted in our daily lives, or how often do we let minor issues consume our emotions and attention so that we get distracted from the greater things of knowing God, loving Him, and loving our neighbor? And so the question that we should ask in light of that term Pharisee is, how often do I look like them? How often would I be called a son of a Pharisee? Because I'm not rightly prioritizing the things of God. Maybe you're not even sure how you go about rightly prioritizing the things of God. I thought about this. I thought, how do I evaluate this? And I I came up with some questions that I would ask. This is not all the questions. Maybe they're not even the best questions, but they're what you get this morning. Here's some questions you can ask to help evaluate. Are you rightly prioritizing the things of God so that you do not look like the Pharisees? So that you cannot be called a son of the Pharisees? Does this thing make me love God more? Does it make me love people more? Does this thing, this opinion, whatever it is, does it make me want to spend more time in prayer and fellowship with God? Does it make me want to spend more time in fellowship with other believers? Does whatever it is that I'm consumed with make me want to share the gospel more? Does it help me share the gospel more? Does it harden me or does it make me weep over the lost? Does it distract me from loving God, from spending time with him, from thinking about him? Does it regularly prevent me from spending time with others and loving others? Does it keep me out of fellowship? Again, these are just some of the questions you can ask, and they're really just intended to help you begin to evaluate how well are you prioritizing your energy, your effort, and your emotions and your spiritual growth. Every church, every denomination, every theological tradition presents temptations to majoring on the minors. If anyone thinks they are exempt from such dangers, they need to think again. And the extent to which any theological or doctrinal conviction causes you to act unlovingly to your neighbor makes you guilty of the sin of the Pharisees. I didn't say you are a Pharisee, it said it makes you guilty of the same sin as the Pharisees. 
And the solution is to repent. Those Pharisees that day were not yet beyond hope. The woe in the Old Testament was a final cry for repentance. They are standing at the door, but there is still time. But we know that God did save some of these religious leaders, some who were probably there that day. Nicodemus, Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, and perhaps several others. Not a majority by any means, but several others. And so whether you're here this morning having never repented of your sins, or whether you are a disciple of Jesus Christ in need of repenting for resembling too closely these unloving Pharisees who have forgotten what is most important, Today is the day of repentance. In fact, every day is the day of repentance. Because as John reminds us, if any of us think we're without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And for me, I know it's true every day, multiple times a day. 1 Corinthians 6.2 reminds us that it is the day of salvation. We read this morning the prayer of David. He prayed, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's the prayer that many of us need to pray when we repent, when we've let sin linger too long in our lives, and that joy is gone. Do not be, as the psalmist says in Psalm 95, and as it's repeated by the writer of Hebrews, do not harden your hearts as the people of Israel did in the wilderness. The psalmist writes that in Psalm 95, verses 7 through 8. When you hear these things, when you feel the conviction, When the Spirit is at work, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders this morning. Father, we're particularly struck by the great compassion in those final three verses. Despite the open rebellion against you, despite the impending, imminent murder of your Son, Christ declares such great compassion. Would we have compassion on those who hurt us? On those who harm us with their words or their actions? Would we not respond in kind? Would we leave vengeance for you? Would we cry out as Stephen did, would, being stoned by these same religious leaders, have mercy on them for they do not know what they do? Would you open their eyes to see the riches, and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ where they come to understand Jesus as very God of very God. We pray these things in your name. Amen.